All right, if you've listened this far, you know the deal. The book that came out of this podcast is called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone by me, available wherever fine books are sold. Also, the podcast I do these days is called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Search any podcast app for Ride Home, and you should find The Tech Meme Ride Home, which is all the day's tech news every weekday in just 15 minutes. If you like this show, you'll love that one. (sighs) The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. So, to follow up after last week's conversation with Carl Heinz Brandenburg, we're going to talk today with another person who was responsible for the MP3 revolution. I actually didn't think we'd get to MP3s for a while, until the Napster period in about the year 2000, but while I was researching Carl Heinz Brandenburg and the birth of the MP3, I realized, or perhaps remembered that mp3s were a growing force in the years before Napster and one of the reasons the mp3 was a growing force was because of a software program called Winamp which was developed by Justin Frankel. As a part of my research I reached out to Justin on Twitter and it turned out that we're essentially neighbors in Brooklyn so there was basically no reason not to go ahead and speak with him right away. So even though this is a bit ahead of things in chronology, in a way, it isn't. Recorded in the conference room of my offices in Dumbo, this is the first time I've attempted that, so let me know if the sound quality is bad. Here is a conversation with Justin Frankel, the founder of Winamp and Nullsoft. Justin Frankel, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Uh, Thank you for having me. Um, Actually, we always start off with... um, Personal background. Uh, funny enough, I think you're the first person that I've interviewed that's not been at least 10 or 15 years older than me. You were born in 78, right? That's right. Class of 96? That's also right. Exactly the same age. <laughs> uh, statistically, you're probably slightly older than me then. Uh, I was born in October. So okay, February, but still. Um, so those six months make a big difference when you're in high school. That's true, but... Uh, it's interesting to suddenly be talking to someone with the same chronological context, basically. Um, so you grew up in uh, Sedona, Arizona. That's right. It's the land of red rocks and crystals and flying saucers and aliens. That's about it, yeah. Um, given that we do share <laughs> chronologically the same age, give me your, give me your um, computer machine history, like, Atari, Commodore 64, Apple IIe in school, like what, what were we dealing with? My older brothers um, had Atari, like an Atari 800XL that they got when I was probably 
five or six, somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. And so that's sort of what I uh, originally started playing with uh, my first experience with a, a computer that lasted for more than an hour at the library or something like that. Um, and from there, you know, I, I programmed in BASIC and saw my older brother's programming. And then uh, when, uh, when my parents got a 386SX, I uh, sort of picked it up again. And at that, at that point, I started doing things in Turbo Pascal and then later uh, in Turbo C. Right. Um, so I guess you, you like doing that enough that you, the goal is to do computer science when you go to college? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I did a lot of programming in high school and uh, actually was put in a position where I got to run, um, sort of administer the student development network. And uh, the school didn't really have a lot of software for it, so I ended up uh, writing programs for students to use. Um, and one of which was like an email program just that could be used locally within the, the network. And, uh, I think it was the wrong amount there. Um, it was used locally by the students in, in the network. And so I, I actually got the experience in, in high school of, of writing software and getting feedback from users and, and sort of getting that experience, which is really satisfying for, for me at least. And writing software. Find it very enjoyable. So. Right. Um, but you only last two semesters. Where, where, where was the college? Uh, so I went to the University of Utah after I graduated high school and, and went for two quarters. And uh, I injured myself the summer before college, like uh, rollerblading, doing something really stupid. Missed the opportunity to test out at the entry level CS classes. So the CS classes I took in college were incredibly boring. I, I would often Harass the teacher by like when he would say things that weren't technically correct, you know, sort of calling it out and saying, "Well, that's not really true." And really good friends with my professors, sorry, but gave it a hand. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I enjoyed other things. I enjoyed writing and physics and stuff. But uh, but I was just really bored and uh, felt like going home. So. I, Quitting college, and around that time, uh, one of my friends in school had made an MP3 player for the Mac uh, mm. called MacAmp. And uh, was that uh, Dimitri? That was Dimitri. And so he did that, and he was showing to me. And, and you know, I had been downloading MP3s prior to that, and, and so it was it was cool that something that you know, writing software that was playing back MP3 files was in, within the grasp of of uh, something that could be figured out how to do. And, and so when I got back from uh, from college and moved back into my parents, uh, I didn't really move out. I was in a dorm room. So. But when I went back home, then what I started doing was writing my first like, real Windows program, which uh, ended up being Winamp. So you hadn't really programmed very much in Windows before that? Um, no, I'd done a few little test applications, but nothing that really would qualify as the, the prompting was that he had done MacAmp, and yeah. so why not do a WinAmp? Right. Uh, I mean, I used Windows, sure. and, and when, at that point, Windows 95 was something like, when Windows 95 first came out, I, I don't think I even had a, a computer that could run it, and then, you know, by that point, everyone did, and, and it was uh, very popular, 
here's, here's something new to learn to write a, a proper Windows application. Here's, a, here's a, something to do. And mm -hmm. Half the battle with programming is just figuring out something that you can do that's within your skill set, but still interesting enough uh, so that it be worthwhile. Well, let's back up for a second, though, because um, I think everyone, again, of our age or whatever, uh, had this experience. I know, I, like, all of a sudden, I, I went back to school one year, like, maybe after Christmas, so it would have been 97, maybe beginning of 98, and all of a sudden, Winamp and MP3s are everywhere, and before they hadn't been. But obviously, you had to have gotten into MP3 sooner than that. Yeah. So do you remember that, like, discovering? Because if, um, I think um, Carl Heinz Brandenburg told me that, um, the Fraunhofer Society had done their released their first, what would it have been, the, the encoding program or something, maybe in 95 or something. So just remember for me how you discovered MP3s and the proliferation and that sort of thing. Um, you know, I don't recall how I first came, became aware of MP3s. However, um, years before that, there were MP2 files, which were MPEG layer 2. And they were quite a bit larger and didn't sound quite as good size. Um, and uh, there was like the Internet Underground Music Archive, and you could, it was an FTP site, you could go and you could find all these different indie artists and download their music. Um, so at a certain point, um, I downloaded, I think it was a Bumble Surfer song, and, uh, Pepper, yes. and uh, you know, there was, a, IRC was a big communication uh, mechanism that was used by a lot of people. I guess today people still use it. Uh, probably the same number of people that is today. Um, so on IRC, I remember seeing a link to to MP3, uh, and there was a channel that was pound MPEG3, spelled MPEG3, uh, that was a channel that I ended up joining uh, and, and participating a lot in. Um, and these were all people who were downloading and, and also encoding MP3s. Um, and so, once I was in that channel, uh, that was initially the, the real first audience for Winamp was when I would make versions of it. Uh, these would be the people who would be testing it, giving feedback and saying, well, you should make it play playlist or you should make it this. Um, so at some point I, I found, and it was probably on an FTP site, the, the Bubble Surfer song and, and downloaded it and was impressed with the uh, and that was probably you know, late 1996. So, how long would you say it took you to the, the very first version of Winamp? Didn't have play. It was very bare bones, right? Yeah. It didn't have the skins and the playlists and things like that. How how long do you think it took you to program that version? Well, so I started by taking this open source decoder called AMP, uh -huh. uh, which was made by a guy in Croatia, and a bunch of other people contributed. But it was like it was his research project. PhD or something like that. And uh, so my first, the first version I did of it, actually before that I did a DOS version called DOSIMA, uh, wow. which was, uh, yeah, admittedly there were very few people who really wanted to use it, I, I suppose, but uh, I had written a bunch of code for DOS, uh, a bunch of, sort of gaming related, gaming and, and demo scene related code, and so uh, it was sort of a natural fit to just put a lot of that to work. So I made the DOS version, and then uh, eventually, in early 97, I started doing the versions of 1AMP, and, and it went really fast. I mean, I think uh, 
to 1.0, it probably took uh, two or three months. Mm -hmm. something like that. And it, it, it was always famous for being also a very thin client in terms of, um, you know, we all complain about iTunes bloat now and stuff like that, but yours was always famous for, was that something that your, your code's always, you've always been good with, like being really efficient and things like that? That, that's a, probably a subject of art. It could be a, a debate. Um, I think for me it was largely that uh, there were all sorts of frameworks you could use, like MFC, uh, or you could use a bunch of uh, third-party libraries. And I would I, I would try to avoid having to do that, mostly because it's more work. But also, uh, I just liked writing sort of basic Windows applications. Um, so at this point, you're, you're back home with your parents in Arizona, and you um, throw up this program for your friends on the, the IRC channel, um, and you throw the program up completely free, like you're not even asking for donations at the beginning, right? Right. It was just a project for fun. And um, at some point when I was, I don't remember what at some point, my parents were asking me questions like, well, how many people are using this? And, uh, and we had you know, a website so people could download it. And so you could see how many people were downloading it. And, uh, and they wanted they wanted me to, to make some money so that I would slum it in their bedroom. But, um, Your dad's a lawyer, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, he's retired now. But. So, so they were like, oh, we should charge people and so I sort of went with something closer to the WinZip model of uh, better piece of software no one right. uses anymore. <laughs> but uh, very fun memories of yeah, uh, which uh, was basically so that people uh, people were technically supposed to send in ten bucks, uh, but there was no actual mechanism to force people to. However, uh, belying the famous notion that no one ever pays for shareware stuff. Um, so, how quickly are you making like a hundred thousand dollars a month just from these ten dollar checks uh, coming? In? I don't think it ever got to that. Point. Okay, but uh, but it was definitely you know you don't need that much money to, right. to have, uh, have a good time. Really. People were actually um, paying because they were loving the app so much. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know most of it was done online with credit cards as well as checks. There were mm -hmm. a fair number of checks, and people would send cash in the mail as well. But um. But yeah, I mean, it made a decent amount of money, and the website got enough traffic as well. And I think early on, we did a, just some very simple deal with with MP3.com mm. to give them uh, impressions, and I think they were paying like a dollar CPM, which was, I guess, a pretty low price at the time. I don't know what it is now, but um, and that quickly had enough to actually do as much as the, the registrations were. Um, where did It Really Whips the Llama's Ass come from? Is it is that to Wesley Willis? It is. Um, I, that, it must have come via, oh yeah, I, I don't know, I recall that. It was, so uh, one of the guys who uh, was involved early on was Tom Pepper, and uh, I think he did uh, the initial artwork for, uh, for Winamp, and then he also made a website. He, at the time, worked for a service provider, and so he had uh, a 
all sorts of know-how and resources for putting websites on the internet, which at the time was like still sort of a black art. Uh, even just registering a domain name in the, the late 90s was like not the easiest thing in the world to do. It was, uh, of course now it's nothing, it's 10 bucks. And, but, um, so he was involved, and I think someone at some point sent an email saying it really whips the long's ass, talking about what Amber might have been talking about Matt Amby. Mm. So someone I think actually was quoting Wesley Willis in this email, and uh, and I think that he put that quote up on the website at some point. And at the time, I don't I don't know if he knew. I definitely didn't know who Wesley Willis was, mm. um, but it just sort of stuck. Yeah. And then uh, yeah, at some point we made it an Easter egg that you could type in Nullsoft and then the title bar would change to show, instead of saying Winamp, it would say it really goes along with that. Um, and then I think eventually, you know, we, we just embraced it and had uh, JJ McKay, who did all these, the, he has that radio voice, uh, did the MP3 that came with it. And, and Nullsoft is a, a play on Microsoft, is it that if Microsoft is micro, you're basically nothing, is that the play? Yeah, it's just, it had a, more or less that, and also just, uh, when I originally started using it, there wasn't a company, there wasn't, there was me, like, making random programs, and so it was just a appropriate name. So how, how long after you first released it did you actually form Nullsoft? Was it within a year, or? Um, I think we incorporated in January of 98, okay. so it was a little less. less than a year, yeah. but, uh, you know, we, we were, Making money before then, it was just uh, it was just a like a DBA or something like that. Um, proprietorship. Let's get in before we get to the crazy stuff. Um, let's talk a little bit about the, the development. So um, you're basically just taking feedback from users, and you're starting to add things like um, the you know the ability to do playlists, the ability to um, you know, get the the ID tags and things like that, the ability to scan your hard drive and create a library and stuff like that. Is this all coming from user feedback and things like that? Actually, the, um, largely, the, I should mention the scanning your hard drive for a library, that actually came way later. Early on, we would sort of take the, we never really did that. We just let people manage their playlists mm -hmm. and import, export. Um, other things that we did that, that were really sort of unique and New, we're um, doing a real-time equalizer. No one had that. Um, doing visualizations uh, that had been done by some old DOS. There was like Cubic Player, which was a mod player mm -hmm. uh, for DOS that had like a nice spectrum analyzer and stuff like that. Or this is um, I, I always used to think because this is the day of, of like screensavers and stuff. So like that's what you did is you just let your computer sit there and play images. Like I wondered if maybe that had come from that or something. Yeah. It was in the air. Um, yeah, I mean, I, there was, there was, wasn't unprecedented, but just the yeah. integration of all these things, uh, those were the things. A lot of that was from my own, like, personal desire, and then a lot of it's from feedback. Um, the, the skinning, uh, without trying to put words in your mouth, like, how, how important do you think that was to the popularity? Eventually, it went in. I don't know. Um, it's it's hard to say. I, I you know I think a lot of people found it really entertaining. 
Um, you know, the story of that is that people were uh, actually using resource editors to change the images within the application and distributing like new executables that had the, the different um, skin. And so the problem was is people would use that and then every time we would update the versions, which early on in, in the life of it was very often people would have to reapply these images. So uh, at a certain point we just decided to make it like a separate, separate thing and skinny. We didn't invent like the idea of it, it was right. that users did it and we're like, okay, well let's make that a little easier for them. But uh, yeah, it's hard to know how like how that affects popularity. It is the kind of thing where I think and we've gone through this, the software I make now is also themeable. And for a few years it was very a, a very big thing for people to make themes. And then it sort of that's faded off and mm -hmm. people care less. The, the current software I do now, it's like, I think a lot of that's due to the fact that the theme that comes with now is so much better than what it came with five years ago, mm -hmm. that people now are just like, oh, this looks nice. Why would I change anything? Whereas before, they were like, oh, I want it to look like fancy or cleaner or something like that. But, uh, but for winning, I, I don't really know. It's hard to know, you know, what would have happened if it hadn't been skinnable. But uh, it definitely, there was a, a great community around it. Mm -hmm. uh, as a result of that, that people on our forums who like to talk and share, and it definitely was beneficial for that, but uh, hard to know how that really affected. Right. Well, the other thing that I remember, I'm just using my own personal re recollections for this, but like, um, you obviously weren't the first people to do plugins and things like that, but that willingness to do skins allow plugins and stuff so people could do precisely what they wanted to do with your stuff. Um, the, the idea of plugins, did that also come from people badgering you, I want to do this, I want to do that, and you just let them do it? Um, you know, I don't, I don't remember exactly. I think a lot of it was just wanting to experiment but not wanting to mess with the core and, and worry about breaking things with the core. Um, and then it's also... Uh, yeah, I think just the general laziness of wanting to let other people do more work. Um, so, it, uh, Winamp is released in 97, and um, when, like, so you had to have, like, your finger right on the pulse of when the MP3 explosion happened. Like, are you able to see that where, oh, we've got 30,000 uh, users, that's pretty nice. Well, we've got 300,000 and then you're reaching the millions. It's like, like, were you able to feel that riding the groundswell of, of the MP3 taking off and going mainstream? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think uh, our exposure to it was uh, was limited in that we were just... I, I was never really sort of trying to be on the edge of that. Mm -hmm. It was more just making software and Seeing people use it and, and sort of having that relationship and having like, let me ask this a different way then. <laughs> sure, yeah. Same kind of question, but asked in a different way. Um, by 1998, in our dorm rooms and stuff, everyone was playing their music on Winamp. Did you have that experience where all of a sudden people you don't know you're encountering Winamp out in the world and and hey, everybody is, it seems to be using this? Did, did you have that level of it's blowing up kind of occasionally? Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, which is very. Mm -hmm. um, 
So when do you have to take it from it's just you to this is a company, maybe I need to bring on other people? When, when does that happen? Um, well, early on, I actually was contacted by a guy named Rob Ward, who uh, actually started uh, Internet Underground Music Archive before right. that. I think he worked for some, I forget who, some part of some record label or some tech, some place in LA, I think. Anyway, and he was very interested in it and saw, I think, a lot of potential for, he saw that he sort of the revolution or the, the big, the bigness of it, uh, and wanted to do, had all sorts of ambition of doing things. And I think if, if, if I, if he had done it, been able to do everything he wanted to do and had the, the right position, he probably would have been uh, where Apple is with, you know, the iPod and so on, or Apple was, I guess, you know. Mm -hmm. So he knew where they were going, but um, but he he had that ambition, um, and uh, and he pushed to do a lot of things that would be you know very beneficial from a like growth and presence. And you know when the first flash based MP3 players came out, he wanted to do like branded versions of that and to, to go and sort of embrace and expand. And I was always just like, eh, you know, I just want to make software. I don't want to have to do all this stuff. I don't want to sort of compromise that experience by uh, sort of expanding to like a business. And, you know, it was I was reluctant to advertise uh, I was reluctant to a lot of things. Well, and I had read from his version of events that he almost has to say, hey, let me, let me try some stuff. And you're like, all right, knock yourself out. And then all of a sudden he's coming back with like, you know, advertising deals and stuff like this. Is that... Yeah, yeah, and and or maybe not knock yourself out, but like yeah, we'll see. And then okay, he comes back and like okay, yeah, and so on. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think I like to think of myself as a capitalist, but I'm also just I think really I don't know. It's it's more about the craftsmanship, and when you start getting too much into the business side of things, I I I, I don't enjoy it anymore. And so ultimately, that I think held us back. About. Unfortunately, we have to get into the business stuff in a second, but I'm curious. Uh, it's fine to talk about. It. I just mean I don't like to. I don't like to compromise the thing I'm making right. for some business reason because it, it just is. Is there a was there a version of Winamp that like you have a particular fondness for? Not it's not asking which was the best version, but is there one where you're like, man, that's really where I hit really what I wanted to do with it? Um, no, I mean. Not really. I mostly used the, the last version that we released before I left AOL, which is like 5.08 or something like that. Um, but, uh, yeah. Um, so, we're going to weave our way towards AOL. Um, so, if I'm going to throw numbers at you, which you don't have to confirm or remember even, but um, so, within 18 months of Winamp being released, apparently you hit around 15 million Downloads or users or something like that. Sounds plausible. And so, at this, at some point, uh, big boys have to start <laughs> taking notice. And um, so, this would be into late '98, maybe into '99. 
I have to imagine that AOL wasn't the only company that started sniffing around you guys. Were there lots of lots of others? We we talked to a few others, and uh, and actually, uh, it looked like we were going to be acquired by someone else. Um, are and, you uh, are you able to? I don't know. Um, hmm. Okay. I, I don't know what. Um, yeah, I bet probably safer not to. Say another company in place, Sunnyvale. Or <laughs> right, um, right, right. But uh, so that that happened. They sniffed around, and then that apparently uh, you know raised some flags with the, uh, the people who had licensed or who had uh, taken over the rights to the, the MP3 decoder that we originally used. Right. Um, and uh, and so they basically. Before anything could happen, they uh, filed suit against us. I guess they they wanted a so piece of the pie. This is Play Media, and, and they yeah. filed the suit because they know that people are sniffing around you. Um, yeah, I don't know what I can really say about that because it subsequently settled, and right. there was all sorts of confidentiality and blah blah blah. But uh, but yeah, basically, I think they they were a little concerned that they weren't going to get paid. Uh, so. um, gotcha. And it, so after that case, you, you switch ISO decoders over to the Fraunhofer? Yeah, I think what happened was, is originally we used AMP, and then we, uh, at a certain point, they renegotiated license terms with us, and we took the opportunity to write a new decoder. Uh, and there were, I guess, enough similarities in rewriting something that does the exact same thing, uh, where they felt that it wasn't lean room enough or something like that, which in all fairness it probably wasn't because I contributed to AMP and so like there was enough involvement that there wasn't any copying of code, but there was uh, enough experience with other code that uh, these similarities were an issue. And so uh, and then switching to the ISO decoders because at that point it was AOL and they had money. Well, or uh, not the ISO, but the front offer. Right, right, right. So I don't read into this question anything, but um, why go with AOL? Now, having said that, this is at the height of AOL's, the, the colossus uh, of the internet. Honestly, the, the lawsuit was a big problem. It was. Um, you know, we originally were talking to other people, and uh, and AOL came and said, "Here's here's a chunk of money. Uh, this is for a clean company. You figure out how to you know how to pay to make to make it a clean company, and, and uh, you know what's whatever's left you get to keep." And so that's what we did. Um, and it was you know we we were making a decent amount of money, but just to to go through the motions of uh, defending the litigation is incredibly expensive. So it was, uh, it was an easy decision to make. Um, I read that you had you said at one point that you did have uh, a brief honeymoon in AOL. Yeah, but I imagine this is also your first time, sort of. <laughs> no, AOL was great uh, initially, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, I think uh, I think they had the best of intentions. Uh, Ted Leonsis, who was uh, like the main guy who I would talk to uh, when I had an issue, he was always so like wanting to make everything right, wanting to do 
interesting, good things. Uh, but the reality was, is as a company, it, those things weren't necessarily possible. And it wasn't just us, it was, it was, it was the way they worked. Well, and also, um, they, they acquire Spinner at the same time, right? Yeah. Um, like, literally simultaneously? I think the same day. And so the idea is to merge all of this together and make a run at, which makes sense because obviously, uh, especially after the Time Warner merger, they would have access to all this content and things like that. So this was maybe a year, a year before before the merger was announced. Even. Right. So yeah, I mean, I think they wanted to have some involvement in, in music on the internet, mm -hmm. um, and uh, this was their move to do that. Having said that, I don't know if they really knew. I think they were essentially buying. Uh, that was the that was the era for that, just buying yeah. whatever. Yeah. And uh, and you know we part of the deal was we didn't have to go to Virginia, which was attractive. So we went to San San Francisco, and, and we shared an office with Spinner. And you know, Spinner had been in that office for probably uh, a month before we got there. So uh, guessing anyway. So in their minds, like. They sort of acquired us, uh, and then same thing for acquired in, by in Spinner's well. mind. Spinner's yeah. mind. Okay. So there was that mentality, which was uh, made things a little more difficult. Uh -huh. uh, probably also shielded us from who knows what from AOL, but but uh, it was yeah made it more abstracted. So is it after um, you're at AOL that you first? Encounter Napster. Yeah, um, I remember the first time I saw it. Um, yeah, I think it was must have been around that time. Um, yeah, it was really cool. <laughs> um, uh, well, I remember, I remember seeing it and, and the conversation being, "Wow, how long is this going to last?" Uh, and uh, and what was what was really interesting about it is that it, it was really small until until, uh, until they got sued or until the, the recording industry went after them, and that's when it blew up. Mm -hmm. the, the classic, what is it, the the Barbara Streisand effect? Once once they got all the headlines, then all of a sudden everyone knows about it, and it creates the problem that they're trying to <laughs> they're yeah. trying to head off. Yeah. Um, well, so but. What's key to understand in the context here is, so if there's this brief window of time where it seems like everybody is suddenly getting their music from Napster, the thing that everybody's playing this music on is Winamp. So in a way, very quickly, Winamp and Napster sort of are this symbiotic kind of software package. Yeah, I guess. I mean... I guess it expands the uh, expands the, the ecosystem. Right, right. But, uh, no, it was it was interesting to see Napster too because we also were like, well, we should be doing this, right? Um, and so we we actually like thought about that, and, and uh, one of the things like going back into the history of Winamp, one of the things that we had to deal with was uh, at a certain point file associations were a big deal. I would install RealPlayer and it would take over your MP3 associations. And, and so, you know, people would get like, ah, I, 
I'm used to double clicking on this and then opening Winamp, and now it's opening a real player. So one of the things we did was make a program that would just run in the background and just manage your file association so that if something if you install something else and took them over, it would take them back. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things we did at this point was that we did an experiment where we put a web server inside the, the Winamp agent, as it was called, and made it an option. I don't think we ever released it, but it was a test. An option so you could have it scan all of your music and then uh, make it accessible via a web interface. Uh, and then you could stream it to other instances of Winamp if you wanted. Uh, and the idea was that we could also make it send uh, a list of the database to some AOL server that ran you know, some Oracle database that we figured out if we had a, you know, 100,000 people or a half a million people sign up for this and you know, decide to use it and they each had a collection of 1,000 tracks like this, this server would cost just a ridiculous amount of money. It's like absurd. Uh, anyway, so we like sort of designed this whole system, and and we're like, no, we can never do this. I mean, AOL has deep pockets. They right. They would release something like this. It, it would be bad. But, uh, well, you 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 guys become friendly with with the Napster guys at some point, right? Yeah. Um, well, I I met Sean Fanning a number of times. Uh, Four times I can count. Uh, he actually was, uh, I know him from uh, car scene. You know, mm -hmm. He had a Mazda RX-7. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, at that point, I, I don't think I really know him. I hadn't known him from IRC. But, um, but you know, so we, we were like looking at that and, and basically wouldn't, knew that we couldn't really do anything like Napster. Um, and, uh, and I think it probably, so there's a rumor on the internet, which, which I think is true, which is that Rob Lord at a certain point uh, told someone at the RIAA about Napster. Uh, told RIAA about Napster that it existed or that, hey, this is a problem for you? like Check this out kind of thing. What, what would be his motivation for that? Uh, well, I think it might have been to just sort of get going what was going to happen eventually mm -hmm. um, or to see, to see if it was going to be something viable. Uh, so I is there really no? I don't know. Maybe, and I'm sorry, Rob. If, if I'm misremembering things, I'm really sorry. Maybe I a little talking about the possibility of that anyway. Maybe a little competitive juices or something like. Sure. This yeah. is what we should be doing. There's probably you know I probably felt that at a certain point like yeah. ah you know I wasn't in AOL. Like, well, obviously, whether um, they were tipped off by him or not, the RIA goes after them pretty quickly. Did they ever come to talk to you guys? Was there ever any, like, uh, meetings, like, strong-arming or threats or anything like that from them? I don't think so. Not to my knowledge, but, um, you know, uh, there was also the, they, the RIA sued Diamond Multimedia for the Rio player, right. Flash player, which uh, was kind of an abuse of I was gonna, it would seem ridiculous that they would even think that they could sue you because of what grounds, but as you say, they, were, time, yeah. they were going everywhere bazooka style. So. And, and also, I mean, it was new, so they were like, oh, this is, you know, this is the future of piracy and we must stop it. And thankfully, you know, that didn't hold up. I mean, it, it held up and that they didn't do well, but uh, you know, we at least had a lot of Right, right, right. 
Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Um, this is like a gif gif thing. Uh, Nutella, Nutella. Uh, I don't really see a difference in that. So, Some people would probably call the hazelnut spread Nutella or Nutella. Right, 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 right. Um, so I guess the question is the G silent. Right. Nutella or... If you don't know, then it doesn't really matter, does it? You should ask Tom Pepper that. Okay. Um, so, is it... You, you've said to yourself, gee, what Napster is achieving is kind of what I kind of wish we were doing. So, so is that well, I, is it your idea or Tom Pepper or together you're like let's do something similar? I, well, I, I would say that I don't know if we wished we were doing it, but it was an interesting thing, mm-hmm. um, and it also did feel sort of like like I agreed that the functionality should be something that people had access to, but I didn't necessarily think that it should be a business. Mm-hmm. And so Nutella was an attempt to make a soft a piece of software that was service that no one controlled and no one would benefit from other than the people using it. Um, and, uh, and it was ultimately my idea of how do you make something that exists just as software that they can connect with each other. Because the, the, the difference between Nutella and um, Napster is that there's not centralized servers. Yeah. It's completely decentralized. Nap- Napster works by having a server that you ran the Napster software, it would connect to the server, establish your presence on it, and send a list of all your music. And the server would then build some a big database that allowed other users to search it. And then if the other users wanted to download something, they would uh, connect to you directly. So they weren't actually transmitting music files around in Napster, but they were transmitting the index. Uh, so it's technically not technically peer-to-peer. Uh, no, it's, it's peer to Napster would be peer to peer, but it would be um, with a centralized infrastructure. Okay. So Nutella turns that. Nutella was, was a, a system where you would run some software and it would connect to other people uh, directly, and, uh, and then they would be in turn connected to other people. And you would have sort of a horizon of a certain number of hops where. Uh, if someone's connected to someone you're connected to, then you can browse their stuff and, in theory, download it. And 
your idea is that because it's completely decentralized, not only then maybe does that it can't be shut down, can't be sued, but then also the flip side of that is it can't be a company. Right, it can't be monetized. Right. Um, so I guess arguably it could, but in this instance it wouldn't be. Um, yeah. And and the, the real idea of, of sort of how to make it work was just that you could have a, a finite horizon. Because if you wanted to search everyone's music and using the teller, that would never work because the, the numbers get too big too fast. But if you were willing to accept just the nearest hundred people or however, however many hops, uh, that it would be good enough. Once I sort of had that realization, that it was uh, the kind of thing that took like two weeks to, to write. And um, you release it in March of 2000, and you're at AOL at this point, so you're releasing it at AOL. <laughs> yeah, it was, um, I don't know. I, there was, uh, I don't know what my, I was young and, and not very, uh, uh, it was a different time. <laughs> if there was GitHub, like, yeah, I would have just put it on GitHub or something. But, um, you know, like, figuring out how to host things at that point uh, was difficult. And then there was the question of liability. And so I made the decision to post it on AOL's <laughs> stuff as opposed to that they would have to do with that, I guess. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, may have been a mistake. Well, but it, it, better to do it personally just so that, you know, yeah, there might be personal liability or whatever, but at least then it would be clear. But to be fair, I did develop it on AOL's hardware and dime at work. So, um, so yeah, they, they owned it. Um, is there, being generous to you, is there um, maybe some sort of hope in the back of your mind that, well, it's a fait accompli. Once they see it and they see that it works, maybe we can get away with this after the shouting's over. Yeah, I think, you know, I think the, the thing I was thinking was that, Forget about how things look and think about, well, you know, here's a piece of software, it's a piece of software, we can't control what people do and then we can't have knowledge of what people do. But, so what's the big deal? Like, we're just enabling what the internet's designed to do. And uh, they didn't see it that way. Give me a, a flavor of the level of anger that, the, the sort of meetings that you probably had at this point. Uh, you know, I, I, think, I think everyone was, they were pretty, they were pretty together about it. They, uh, Generally speaking, everyone was very level-headed there. My, my issues with how things were run at AOL were not that people would be, you know, destroying phones when they get pissed off or something like that. It was more that no one wanted to ever take any risk. Mm. They had this dial-up cash cow that's making so much money. They just, you know, why, why mess with it? And that was, you know, that ended up being sort of a, a bigger thing later on where, where I, I made another peer-to-peer uh, -peer software product and uh, tried to go through means of, of saying, look, this is a legitimate product. This is something that people want to use. And this is something we can be contributing to the internet. And, and, uh, and a lot of people would be like, well, you know, we don't want to, we have AOL instant messenger. We don't want to, like, uh, you know, well, wait, step on its toes and that sort of thing. You're talking about waste right now? That's right. But then you also did create a, an ad blocker program. That was a joke. Like, <laughs> That blocked the ads on AOL Instant Messenger. It didn't block it. It replaced it with a nice visualization for your win app. So, <laughs> and, and that was actually, some of that was after, well, I might have a chronology wrong, but, you know, 
we talked to, to people at, for, at AOL and Messenger about getting uh, uh, integrating because there would be all sorts of nice things you could do if you had WinAmp and AIM integrated. And at the time, people who used WinAmp like largely used AIM. And so one of the things I wanted was, uh, you know, when you play things in WinAmp, you should be able to see your buddy list, who's listening to what, uh, just as a music discovery thing. Uh, and uh, we never were able to, to make that happen. So as an example, you know, I did, had done that. I don't know if I did that before or after. I don't, I don't remember. But uh, it was just, you know, throw your visualizations where the ads are. Uh, half the time, the ads are just for AOL anyway. I was like, no, AOL. Well, we'll come back to dumb things AOL did in a second, but um, describe Waste, uh, so what that did. Waste was something that was loosely based on some of the ideas of Nutella about having uh, completely distributed networks, but uh, it was built so that you would have a private network, uh, which was all securely encrypted, where you could have typically anywhere from two to 20 people. And uh, the idea was you would have this network that you could do use for chat and for file transfer and browsing. And, uh, and it was completely ad hoc that you could uh, you need to set up a server anywhere. You just a few people run it, you exchange keys, and uh, once you have that, you can communicate with them securely. Um, so it's, it's invite-only kind of... Right, yeah. It's, uh, you know... If you had a group of people, like people who uh, work together uh, in a small company, you might use it for sharing files and sharing uh, notes and, and for chat to, to coordinate things. And so, having made that, and like so I spent a great deal of time on that, it was a much more thorough product than, uh, than Nutella. I, I did, I spent a lot of time at AOL trying to be like, look, we should at least release this, see what people use it for. Um, and, uh, and a lot of the pushback was, well, uh, you know, we don't want to risk uh, people leaving AIM for this. Mm. And, uh, you can make arguments that, well, this is like completely different purpose. This is for, you know, AIM is for if you want to talk to a, a great number of people or a variety of people. This is like people you're really close with. And, uh, and but it was just uh, it was too difficult, and there was uh, you know, there was no upside as far as they were concerned. Uh, you know, progress on the internet was not in their interest. Uh, they they only saw the risks. What what year did you try to uh, get waste out there? Probably two thousand three. Mm -hmm. It's probably too cute to say, but now ten years later we have Slack. You know, so yeah. maybe they should have. Uh, Realize that there were possibilities there. Um, well, they weren't in a position to really take advantage of those possibilities. I mean, they, they put themselves not in that position. Um, someone asked me, um, I have a website where people ask me questions, and someone asked me a question about, like, do you regret like these different things you did with WinAmp or didn't do with WinAmp while you were in AOL? And I'm kind of like, you know, it didn't really matter what we did there because we were ultimately not in charge of it, and they were going to not do, they, they were going to do the right thing for it. Yeah. Well, so, you know, uh, along these lines, I think at some point while you're there, maybe not you specifically, but the AOL um, comes out with a music subscription product, I think in like 2003-ish, 
and other people have said that you know even even if we're not thinking all the way down the road to music subscription um you know someone has said that like if you think about what AOL had in the early 2000s the only thing that would differentiate what AOL had from what Apple would later do with the iTunes ecosystem is they didn't have an iPod but basically thanks to you guys they had everything else in place to kind of do a similar thing to iTunes and maybe try music subscriptions and things like that so is that again not trying to put words in your mouth but maybe they were feeling their way in that direction but they just didn't have the vision or they didn't have the wherewithal to make this sort of stuff happen or yeah. the will maybe I don't know um, you know they, they might have they might have hoped that we were going to do it anyway. I think I don't know. It's hard to say. I think uh, I think they they didn't. I don't think they really knew how to make it happen. If they had come and said, if they had come to us and Spinner hadn't been involved and said, "Look, we want you to build a, a music service," and you know we think that this would be a, a big thing. I, if I had said yes, which I don't know if I would have, mm-hmm. that that could have been done pretty quickly. I think. But, uh, you know, they, I probably wouldn't have said yes because I would be like, well, we have one app, and I don't want to just stop working on this. And, uh, and so instead, you know, you had these, this big organization, and you had, like, we, we I handed over Winamp development to someone else, and they started building stuff that was supposed to be, in theory, reusable for AOL to use. And things get just basically got way too complicated. The real... I think the real thing is, is everyone thought it through too much. Mm. Uh, whereas if someone, if AOL just decided, hey, we want to build this music service just as quickly and like to the point as possible, it, it actually would have been straightforward. Mm. But having said that, I, I don't know if they would have had the muscle to get the necessary licensing and, and to make it really attractive. Um, I think it took Apple to really. Well, and it took several years of music sales going down, like, I don't know if in, 19, in 2002 they weren't ready to talk by 2004. Yeah. You know. Um, one more thing about AOL, um, you know, you, you mentioned that you know, most, of, most of the ads on AIM were for AOL or whatever. How much of, um, you know, the, the classic, we gotta milk our cash cow, dial up for as long as we can, We've got to we we're, we got to dog food all of the AOL products and point everyone back to AOL, point everyone back to AIM and things like that. How much of that was going on? Uh, we didn't. I don't think we saw too much of that, though. We you know we were very aware that it happened. They always talked about carpet bombing and CDs and all that, but but no, there wasn't too much of that. Um, My exposure, at least. So you leave two thousand four. Yeah. Is it is sort of waste that was your kind of um, well they're not going to do this my time here is done. So I ended up releasing waste uh, without their right explicit permission. No one ever told me don't release this. They just stalled. Uh, so I released it and and they were not happy about that. And I was like, well, you never said not to. And they said, well, we never said that you could. And I said, well, I thought it was within my scope of my. Uh, Job duties to release things that have no you know, IP issues, blah blah blah. Uh, and they were like, "Well, so what are you, what are we doing here?" And then, and I said, "Well, I'd like to stay and finish Win M5, which um, was probably 
another year away or six months away. So I did, and uh, and then soon after that was released, uh, I started talking to, uh, I forget how I got in touch with him, but David Kushner, the, the author, and uh, he came to San Francisco, we hung out some, he ended up writing a, an article about it in Rolling Stone, and, and, then, uh, and after that, they were always like, they, they call they, it. They call you the last punk rock programmer or something. Uh, sorry, <laughs> I, uh, I don't know. It was like the headline was like the world's most dangerous geek. Right, right. Not really that dangerous. That, that says a lot about geeks. Uh, <laughs> they're pretty tame. But uh, but yeah, you're well wanted me gone. Actually. I obliged. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, I I stayed there for like five years, which is long. Mm-hmm. Um, I, we'll end by talking about what you've been working on over the last decade. Um, but the afterlife of Winamp, um, like I had, I found a stat that like actually the peak of Winamp usage was like 2007, where there were uh, still 90 million active users. And I think overseas, like because hasn't Winamp most of those are probably overseas. But like um, Winamp was bought by somebody else recently, and like it still like has millions of users and is generating some sort of meaningful revenue. And um, I don't know if there's a question there, but what do you, what do you think about that afterlife of Winamp? Uh, well, I hope that you know. I think it's it, I think it was bought by a Belgian company that does like uh, streaming radio. But I hope that it comes. It, it's sort of in. in Purgatory right now. I don't think that they really are doing anything with it. Uh, I think they're sitting on it, and uh, hopefully it will. Uh, hopefully it will come back to life fully. Um, what about the the afterlife of um, Nutella? Because the you know it, it evolved in all those different flavors. Uh, specifically, I remember Bear Share was the one that I used, but there was LimeWire. There was all this other stuff, and. Um, what were, how did you feel about that? Because what happened, you released it, they have you take it down, but then it yeah. had already gone out to like 20,000 people. So then Well, it, and Nutella was released as a binary, so it wasn't even, the protocol wasn't even uh, available. And then some people who, who downloaded it uh, reverse engineered it, and I, I think I dropped them some things. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't think, uh, I don't think it really mattered much to design it because it was, such a proof of concept and so uh, so basic and flawed. Uh, it was more of just the, the mentality and idea that you could have uh, a product like that, mm-hmm. um, and that was influential and more important. You know, I'm looking. Uh, we skipped over a, another thing that I remember, which was Shoutcast. Yeah. So just to do justice to it. Uh, for the history books, just tell us a little bit about Shoutcast because that was yeah. developed around the same time as, as Winamp. Yeah, it was uh, it was probably early on, in, like within the first year of mm-hmm. Winamp. And Shoutcast was uh, a streaming MP3 radio platform, and uh, I originally made it with the idea of being able to listen to the show Love Line, which is on K Rock. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the idea was I could have a friend on a modem. Mm. stream that to a server in Iowa mm-hmm. and then I could stream it from that server mm-hmm. uh, or potentially multiple people could so 
allowing you with limited bandwidth to, to relay uh, to, to more, more people than you had been mm -hmm. yourself. Um, so I like that was my, my first real network program. Mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, around that same time I I had just added or, or was adding HTTP Streaming capabilities to WinAmp, so it was sort of uh, I, taking the other side of that as well. And uh, and then I, I believe it was actually Tom uh, Pepper who sort of had the idea that we could have a directory, which the the server when you ran the server could automatically list itself in this directory. And that had been done before with things like uh, in multiplayer games. There was a program called GameSpot. Did this for Quake, uh, so you could go and get a list of servers running Quake and then join one of them. So this was the equivalent of that for um, for radio, and I think that's sort of like the first GameSpy was, I think, the first like real peer-to-peer -peer system where you have a directory and, mm -hmm. and services, and the Chatcast was that for radio, and then Napster was that for files. Right. Uh, sort of these are all of a similar. Uh, Concept. Right. Um, so yeah, so we continued to run Chowcast for, for some years, and AOL ran it and uh, used a ton of bandwidth, uh, delivering tons of Chowcast streams for all sorts of different stations. Um, I think they they looked at it as uh, they they predominantly had people downloading things on their dial-up connections, so being able to send network traffic back out to the internet was uh, beneficial. Hmm. Um, is it is is it Tom Pepper who's who was at Beats and so now he's at Apple? Is that yes. yeah? That's an, an interesting all the way around the circle there. Yeah, uh, half of the people I've worked with are at Apple, or two thirds are at Apple, and maybe a third are at Google. And uh -huh. like, uh, so after you left AOL, did you? It, is Kakos what you started immediately? And is that how you pronounce it? Yes, <laughs> okay. yes. No, we've, we've uh, for April Fools, we changed the C to have a CD on it, so mm -hmm. it's Sakos. Sakos, okay. But, uh, but uh, uh, Kakos was, uh, yeah, the name comes from the movie Office Space. Mm -hmm. Kakos. Right, right, it's right. not actually Kakos. Right. But yeah, I started that and just started playing around doing different things and uh, ended up uh, writing a digital audio workstation mm -hmm. called Reaper, which took 10 years. But. Well, it's, I mean, it's not all audio stuff, but it's a lot of audio stuff. There's a lot of stuff for musicians. And is, is there any theme or is it just whatever you're interested in? I got into playing music around the time I left, or before I left AOL. So. Uh -huh. Actually, when, when I did that, when I was talking to David Kushner, we, we like were sitting sitting around playing music for mm -hmm. That's how we got me to say all sorts of shit I shouldn't say. <laughs> um, so Kakos goes where you go. Um, yeah, it's just the uh, yeah. There's uh, there are two other people who are shareholders, and, uh, and then we have contractors who are all various countries around the world who actually do all the work. What's the what would be the biggest program that people might have run across? Uh, Reaper, Reaper, probably, right? Only um, if they do 
audio production and are one of the one percent who half a percent or something. Why did you why did you move to New York? Uh, it's it's a great city. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, I don't know. It's got it's got so much more soul in San Francisco. That's so funny. I have so many friends. My friend that moved to, so many people are fleeing San Francisco, right? I don't mean to sound like the New York Times and be like, it's a trend, you know, but people that have done their, like, 10 years there, and they all are coming here. I don't know what that says. but There are, there are a lot of problems there. I don't think it's a terribly well-run city. Hopefully they don't, they don't come after me for that city. <laughs> but, no, I think the real problem is that you have all these people who live there and don't contribute to the economy very much. They ride their buses to the peninsula and... Uh, way that the city's a lot of how the city is funded is they have a payroll tax and uh, the people who work outside of the city don't pay the payroll tax. So here in New York we have city income tax. Mm -hmm. But we have money. But, uh, anyway. um, I, I always end with a question that has gotten to sound dumber and dumber to me over time. <laughs> so I'm going to try to ask it in a modified way which is um, you know, almost, what is it, 15 years on from uh, from starting Winamp and your whole ride with AOL, and you've, you've seen the rise of what iTunes did. You know, basically the entire music industry has been absorbed into now Apple, Google, you know, they, they, they've lost their own, you know, independence and things like that. Now I guess we're in the streaming era. What do you think of when you look back on 15 years, like you, you basically just wanted to write a program that you could organize your music on your, on your computer. Now it's just an app and, and you, you make a playlist and you pay however much a month. Like, wh what do you think about that evolution that you've seen over the last 15 years? Well, you know, honestly, I think uh, we have music services and we have all these new options, but I, I still just end up sitting down on my computer wanting to put on an album uh, at a time. And, and, uh, and so I think people, for me at least, I, I don't think my, the way I listen to music has really changed since then. Um, it's, it's nice that we have more options, and we have more availability. The fact that we can just go out and buy an album digitally now and download it via iTunes or Amazon or whoever. Uh, you know, I think that that's, that's fantastic. And, you know, a lot of people back in the day who were pirating music, if they could have just bought the MP3s for $7 for an album, they totally would have. It's just that that was never on the table. So it's, I'm, I'm very happy to see that it is. You ever buy vinyl or CDs or anything like that? Yeah, vinyl. I don't, if I can avoid buying CDs, yeah. I'll just get the Well, but even the concept, I guess, of buying an album in any form might be going away within a few, few years or so. Like the vinyl? Or well, the, uh, just the album, as album well. ownership, full stop, in the sense that this is, again, just something I subscribe to and I get everything. And... Yeah, I mean, I personally don't like the economics of it because I might go six months and not buy a new album, and so I've just spent 60 bucks, whereas... Uh, 
what is the economics of that? Because you're paid per stream, but if, right, if I don't listen for a month, who gets that money? Well, it's not even about yeah. listening. It's about um, buying new things. Right, yeah. Personally, I like buying an album for seven or ten bucks. Yeah. Because, you know, I don't do it that often. And, uh, you know, I might... Yeah. Whereas paying them ten bucks a month to listen to the same stuff that I probably already own anyway. Uh, less attractive. Though for Discovery, it is good. It is nice that I can go on Apple Music and type in James Brown and like, go browse the catalog and just listen to different years mm -hmm. and figure out what albums of his I want to buy. Um, that's pretty sweet. I have a very clear... Right. Well, plus, how many things are we subscribing to at this point? You know what I mean? We, we need a startup that just aggregates all of our subscriptions and we pay one bill. Actually, that's maybe not the dumbest thing in the world. Um, I have a very strong memory. I know for a fact um, my first MP3 was um, Save Me by Amy Mann, the one that was in the... Um, what was that? That movie, um, Magnolia. Yeah. Um, so I could remember, like, literally downloading that overnight and then pulling it up in the morning in my Winamp. And, um, so, Justin Brinkle, <laughs> right. thank you for helping me go all nostalgia on this. Uh, but, but thank you also for giving us the context and uh, the history of this whole crazy musical revolution. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.